Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Jerry, Jerry Berger. Jerry, welcome to the show. Really looking for our, forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Simon. Me too. Yeah. So Jerry is a fellow adoptee. She is also an, an author and she is a genetic genealogist. Genetic genealogist. So um, why don't we start with that? Why don't we start with what, because everybody knows what an adoptee is, everybody knows what an, an author is, not everybody knows what a, gen, a genetic genealogist is. So what's a genetic genealogist? Thank you, Simon. It, it's a relatively new field. It's, it's, uh, it, it's come around since the onset of really commercial genetic DNA testing with companies such as Ancestry.com, 23andMe, my heritage, family tree DNA, uh, etc. And genetic genealogy combines both traditional genealogical research methods uh, through available records and also research analysis and um, deduction, being a bit of a detective, using the family trees of one's genetic matches to identify and locate their missing person, whether it be a grandparent, great-grandparent, parent, et cetera. Okay. Um, so you were telling me uh, earlier on that you've helped over 300 adoptees get to a, like a successful conclusion in, in terms of their, um, their, their search, the outcomes they were looking for, something like that. So you've clearly got a, a huge wealth of um, uh, knowledge in this area and and listeners as always um if you are interested in finding out well, what the um the, the guest is on about there's always in the show notes always give a bio and links to their um, websites if they've got one their books if they've got one and also their social media but yeah over 300 adoptees it's it's huge it's 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 clearly been um a labor of love for you right it's a passion, um, you know, being an adoptee myself and wondering uh, who I was and where I came from for most of my adult life um, and finally learning the truth of my origins is part of what has motivated me to want to help other people do the same. Yeah. So um, can you tell us, a we'll, we'll, let's dig a little bit deeper into the personal stuff and then we'll go into the, the learnings from the perspective that you've got with all these helping all these other adoptees and it's it's fantastic you know that that's it's kind of mirrors my stuff so I'm doing it I, I'm I've learned some stuff and I want to share with others you've learned some stuff you want to share it with others we only ever have big people with big um, hearts on this podcast right people don't do it otherwise so um can you tell us a little bit about your your own um, so it's just um, whatever you're comfortable um, sharing. Really. What, sure. I, uh, I, I learned I was adopted as early as I could remember, maybe three or four years old. <clears throat> and um, uh, I remember actually um, going to a book fair in the second grade and picking up a book called Are You My Mother? And where this little bird is, it's a little tiny bird falls from his nest and he's hopping around town asking a, a dog and a hen and a bulldozer, are you my mother? Because his mother had taken off before he hatched out of his little egg. And I could really relate to that little bird. 
And I think ever since then, my search didn't begin in earnest, but I, I do remember looking at my teachers, my friends, parents, women who would have been around the right age to be my biological mother, looking for resemblances and likenesses, looking for her in the face of strangers. On my 18th birthday, and I had always expressed a curiosity about my origins and my parents were, um, you know, really uh, okay with it and understood that it wasn't about wanting other parents. These were just natural questions. Who do I look like? Where do I come from? What do, what do you know about them? Um, as you're growing your own identity and developing. And um, my mom always told me on my 18th birthday, she would provide me with a copy of my adoption papers, which she did. And when I finally, and it was a private adoption, not an agency adoption. So we had a name and, and an approximate location of where she was from based on what the attorney had told my parents. And I remember thinking, well, how hard can this be? Now I know her name and I know where she's from and I've got a car and a telephone and I'm going to find her. And I just, I never assumed that she wouldn't want to be found. I mean, I, 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 I didn't have that perspective at the time. And um, it was very difficult because as it turns out, she used an alias and I searched for her for 24 years. Um, it wasn't until we were reunited through a, um, an adoption reunion registry for birth parents and adult adoptees that I found her. And, and I may never have unless she registered because she used an alias. Yeah. Wow. And um, how's that? How, how was that? And, and, and how, how's that been? Or you know, where, where are you with that? It's been incredible. You know, it's a never ending journey of self-discovery, just like anyone else who works on their ancestry chart. You know, the more what, what begins as a process of playing fill in the blanks um, on a family tree software really morphs into a journey of self-discovery as you learn more about your birth parents and their parents and way, way back, if, if that's possible. But um, I first contacted my birth mother three days before my 42nd birthday. Um, and it was awesome. I, I left a message. I was very nervous. And she called me back and um, said, you found me, baby. That's me. And we were on the phone for hours and exchanged pictures. And there were so many coincidences of us having stomped the same soil through throughout our lives. In fact, when we took a dinner break, um, she had sent me a picture of her sister um, on a covered bridge in the town I went to college in. Wow. And I had to call her back right away in New Hampshire of all places. And I said, which is miles from where either of us ever lived I, it, at that time. And um, I said, that's the covered bridge in Henniker, New Hampshire. And she said, how on earth would you know that? It's just this little bitty town. And I said, I went to school there. So um you know, we had a very long honeymoon period of discovering our likenesses and her teaching me about my ancestry. And, and another thing that made it special was she told me I had six half siblings who have known about me since they were old enough to talk. So um, not only did I get to reunite with her, but I had marathon phone conversations with six of my half siblings on my 42nd birthday so it's remarkable wow. wow incredible incredible now i just want to take you a step back because you said something about that 
you 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 uh, you never thought that she wouldn't want to be found something like that she said you said you, yeah you... it never occurred to me yeah. uh at the time when i was 18 and looking at those papers and seeing her name that she wouldn't want to be found it might have i wasn't and i think that had more to do with maybe a maturity level of of not even considering or anticipating how I might be received. And um, of course, you know, they're, they're, you know, looking back, uh, maybe later on than that, during my search, there is that fear of rejection. Because by sheer virtue of the fact that you were adopted, adoptees are afraid of rejection, because they were placed for adoption at birth and in some regard felt unwanted, perceived the adoption as a, as a first rejection. And, but, but in 95% of the cases that I've worked on, including my own, and that's not to say this never happens, um, birth mothers are amenable and desirous of contact once they've had time to process that their baby, who's now an adult, would like to meet them because many of them process that loss, the surrender at the adoption as a death. And they've reconciled that and they've come to believe that it's just never gonna be possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, had that, uh, I had that fear of rejection um, that was uh, by, by a, a second rejection by my birth mother um, that was buried very deep it actually just exploded in a um in a, in a therapy session about eight years or so ago and i I'd, I'd never been aware that that fear i that, that i had that fear didn't i it, it was totally it must have been totally subconscious totally subconscious um so it came it came as a big surprise when it came um and, and but um, I kind of I um, my reaction to that was I'm not gonna. It was a kind of a, a macho reaction. <laughs> like I'm not gonna let that fear stop me. Um, and and I and I and I so I restarted my search after that. Unfortunately, she she died. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. It's I think part of it for me, I think part of it for me, Simon, was, uh, you know, you know yourself very well, even at a young age, and no part of my inner, of my soul, of my heart, for lack of better terms, could ever imagine under any circumstances, denying my own child, if I were in her shoes. And maybe there might have been a time for some birth parents where they felt the same way, but in many ways, um, you know, certain things that happen to us in life define who we become and what our spouses and children deem acceptable and, and, and whatnot can affect our choice to meet or not meet uh, a child that was placed for adoption. But I guess uh, I ne while I had the fear as my search progressed that you know, as I felt I got closer because there were many kind of false starts like, oh, here she is. This must be her. And it's not her. Oh, here's another person by the same. Oh, it's not them. So you get your hopes up and then you fall. And 
sometimes, I mean, over the course of 24 years, you have to take breaks uh, just for sheer self-preservation to just put the search down and get on with your own life. And then someone says something or something comes to mind or you watch a movie and then get ready for re-entry. <laughs> it comes up again. But uh, it did occur to me that rejection was a possibility. And certainly every time I picked up the phone to call someone by that name, I think my heart was in my throat and my hands were shaking. But um, that having been said, I also knew that if she was anything like me, even if she had to have the conversation privately or not welcome me into her life in terms of my siblings, if I had any, which I do, or her husband, if she was married, which she is, um, we're not okay with it, that she would find a way because I think you inherit a lot more than how you look. And um, I guess I, I believed, or at least was extremely hopeful to the point where I believed that um, there's no way that she, if she were living, that she would deny me. Yeah. And she didn't. I was lucky. That's cool. Yeah. So I'll take you back a, a, a little bit further because it seems like, um, as we're kind of roughly the same uh, age, I think, um, and I, I, you never ask a, a lady her name, uh, her age, right? Um, so uh, it, you can ask my age. I'll be 58 in April. Oh, okay. Right. So we're I was born age. in 1965 and my birth mom was born in the mid 1940s. Yeah. We're exactly the same age. I'm 57 too. So yeah. Um, uh, you're, yeah, I'm, I'm you, you just, uh, I'll be 58 next January. Gone. Uh, so next January, gone. How do you, how do you get that? Next January, I'll be 58. Um, so it seems to me that your parents, uh, especially, you know, you talked about your mum. she was kind of quite, um, open you know she said okay well when you get to 18 she uh you're gonna get the the, the details and then you can kind of go I, I that seems to be perhaps a little more uh, she was a little at more ease at it uh, more at ease about this than the majority of of, of parents of that um, adopting parents in that era i would guess would you say or it's hard to say. There were a handful of adoptees that I went to school with in uh, elementary school, junior high and high school. And we all seem to figure out who each other are very early on, whether or not we become dear friends or not. Uh, those, those handfuls of people tend to know because most towns are small towns in their way. And uh, you have friends and you go over to their house after school and you get to know their siblings. And so there's this sense of community. And invariably there are the comments, you know, well, you don't look like your parents or you don't look like your brother. Oh, you're so-and-so sister. You don't look, you know, and well, that's because I'm adopted. And so, um, you know, and we're, and word just kind of gets around or when you tell a friend you're adopted, they're like, Oh, this other person who lives around the block from you is adopted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, um, yeah, but I, I was, I was very, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I was I was very surprised when you said that ninety five percent of a of a, a of birth mums were a, a, amenable. You know, I thought, and the um, and the the first thought that came to my mind really was that's a that's a big number, but also the fact that uh, th their amenability changes over time. I would guess, does it? Some of them. Because some some 
um, you talked about birth mothers processing it like 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 death um, and uh, the, the the shame from talking to, to to birth mothers as I have done uh, the 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 shame that society heaped heaped on them became uh, was so huge that um, that's it it became a very scary area for them to go anywhere near whatsoever and that that's going to reduce their amenability right that because they're going to be actually scared it's, it's something that's so so close to their hearts that they can't bear it we uh, can't bear that um resurfacing again i mean how would you I, i'm i'm stumbling really i don't know what the question is but um Regarding the amenability of, you know, I guess you find the high numbers staggering based on what they went through at the time and the stigma associated with it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate just to, I'm not really sure if I answered your prior question, but basically um, I don't really know too much about other adoptees experiences in that regard uh, concerning people that I was, that I grew up with. I raised the question, I raised some questions occasionally throughout my life and um, they knew there was a curiosity, nothing was hidden, and there was nothing emotional uh, really attached to it. Um, and they understood my need to know. They wanted me to be at peace and to have that information. And I think they were curious too, uh, to some regard. But uh, in terms of uh, the amenability of um, birth parents, interest, an interesting fact here in the US is that some women who surrendered children for adoption in the 1960s were actually the pioneers of the adoption reform movement, which was, you know, a march on, on Washington for open records. They were pissed off, for lack of a better term, that their mothers made them give up their babies because of the stigma it would uh, put on their family during those times. And they really weren't given a choice. It was fine. If you want to keep the baby, you're on your own. You're not coming back home, et cetera. So there was no real choice. And, and, but they wanted their children to be able to have access to their own original birth records, everything, not just the original birth certificate. The fight was for open records that any adoptee that comes of age would have access to the adoption petition, the relinquishment papers, the medical and for everything that's in that file. And eventually in, in nine of 50 states, two that never sealed records because here the um, birth records, original birth certificates are controlled by the state in which the adoptee is born and adopted. Um, they, uh, they, um, I just lost my train. I'm sorry. Yeah, the, you're talking uh, about the nine, the nine states and the open records, and yeah. right. They, they, they were the fight was for open records. But what we as adoptees and some birth parents who are were pioneers of this movement for the fight for open records to unseal the records so their children could find them if they wanted to. So I don't know that. I, I mean, certainly there are those birth parents that don't want contact that are not amenable who never were and predominantly because their parents brainwashed them at a very young age that if you ever tell anyone, even the natural father about this baby 
or the fact that you're pregnant or the fact that you gave up a child, you'll be damaged goods. No one will ever want to marry you. Your relationships will go down the tubes. You'll basically be ostracized by society. And then when birth mothers had to sign the relinquishment papers, they pretty much had to swear in writing that they promised to in no way ever interfere in the relationship between the child and the adopting family. So many believed, as my own birth mother did, um, that it was illegal right. uh, for her to even look for me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't, um, I hadn't heard that before. But I, I think as times changed and these women's parents pass away and they feel more empowered and they may be in the workforce and they have a level of education and uh, more life experience, they're they're better in a position to make their own dreams come true. And at least to have that, to have that closure, to no longer have to wonder, is that child okay? Or God forbid, did something hideous happen? Like you used to see on some of these TV programs about what happens when children enter the foster system or have abusive adoptive parents, et cetera. Yeah. So um, what have been the most kind of surprising things that you've, you've learned uh, as you've helped other adoptees find their truth? The surprising things. So the, so the, 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 the listeners for this episode will be definitely will be adoptees. Um, they, they might find that, that statistic you know, if they're, if, if they're afraid, if they're aware of their fear of rejection, um, like, like I became, right, they, they might be surprised that, that, that it's actually, 90, you know, and obviously it's a rule of thumb, it's based on the 300 cases that you've, that you've um, worked, uh, worked on and, and got to resolution of. But what, what, what's the information that adoptees who are, perhaps going through this search at, at the moment, what's the most kind of surprising things that they might experience? That, that they might experience. So, yeah, that's a good point. Well, uh, in today's day and age, um, <clears throat> you know, DNA testing is a game changer. And so whether or not the place in which you live, uh, or, or I should say, where you were born or adopted, whether or not you are allowed to have access to your own original birth information doesn't necessarily mean, as in my case, just as in my case, that you're going to be able to find that person because they've probably been married at least once, 50, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And they might have, they may have used an alias. So I think what, and also adoptees talk to other adoptees. And by the time adults are ready to search, they've already heard stories from other adoptees and have learned that the information that was provided may not be true. As an example, my parents, my adoptive parents were told that both of my, my birth parents were Jewish because they were Jewish. It wasn't true. Uh, my birth mom was a quarter Jewish on her father's side. Uh, the ages that they provided were accurate for my birth mother and completely inaccurate for my natural father. So I think one of the things that people find surprising is when they get their DNA results, because today someone who's searching 
whether or not they have access to their own original birth information is going to find out online or through the adoption community or whatever means that the way people are making contact with their biological family members is through DNA testing. And that's because as, as you know, Simon, <clears throat> some people may not, it's not, when you take a DNA test, you not only receive an admixture chart, which is a fancy name for a breakdown of your ethnic mix, the systems also pair you with your genetic quote unquote matches, your genetic relatives and deposit them into categories of approximate relationship, parent-child, close family, first cousin, second cousin, third cousin, et cetera. And so it's almost making a lot of these restrictive laws irrelevant, but one of the big surprises people find is when they look at those DNA results and they see things in their admixture chart that they never expected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where it begins for some before yeah. they start, before the search progresses beyond that. So yeah, bef before we started recording, I was telling, telling, to Jared, uh, telling Jared that my new year started off with uh, uh, an interesting one, which is a conversation with a cousin um, who I met through Ancestry DNA. So um, some of the uh, one of the one of one of the guests on the show recommended. Um, doing it so I did it and then somebody else told me that if you you can take your ancestry DNA records and you can actually upload them to other sites so you're not restricted to just the site um, that um, that you test on you can use you can use your records on other communities may uh, I jump on that first yeah second? of course yeah you'll, so, you'll explain it clearly. so what you're saying what you're really saying is that when, uh, uh, well, just to clarify for listeners who are not familiar with DNA testing, um, when you test with a company such as Ancestry or 23andMe, you have the ability to download what is called your raw DNA data, which are your test results. And there are other sites who accept what is called competitor uploads, meaning on Family Tree DNA, MyHeritage, you can actually upload your results from Ancestry or 23andMe or other sites and be paired with people who have tested independently with those sites without submitting a DNA sample to them. But companies like Ancestry and 23andMe do not accept competitor uploads. And so um, you must test with both of those companies, but it is possible to increase your pool of genetic matches in search of a closer match um, by doing as you suggested. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so some sites accept competitors uploads. Results, some, right. Some results, some, some don't. Um, I have to say that actually the, the Ancestry one was the biggest out of um and the uh, the other two sites i think were just duplicates really they didn't show me anything that the the ancestry didn't uh, the ancestry dna hadn't done it um so but that's that's one of those things so and the way that i always, I, I always encourage people i'm sorry for interrupting yeah. i always encourage people to test with ancestry first and this is what even volunteers in the search community will suggest and the reason is because we want to kind of corral 
adoptees and birth parents into one place so they can find a parent-child match on the first test. That having been said, Ancestry has over 20 million independent DNA testers, whereas the other companies weigh in at anywhere from two to five million testers. And so the statistical odds of a closer match, um, and not even a parent-child, but the statistical odds of closer matches are in your favor and make it easier um, <clears throat> to identify the birth family. Yeah, yeah. So um, what are the, the emotional roller coaster? The, you, 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 ref, you referred to this as a lot of false, false starts when you were doing, when you were doing your, your search. It are, are, I guess with DNA, false starts aren't quite as important these days or, or, or not important, they're not quite as um, common. common, is it? I mean, what? What does it look like? What does the landscape look like? I guess it depends on the searcher and their experience. Sometimes people come to me after, you know, two years of having tested, contacted relatives. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I was adopted. Do you know who my birth parent could be? Which I don't recommend doing because sometimes it results in people taking down their tree and closing off contact with you, um, which is sad, but it happens. Um, but I, I think uh, the, the, the roller coaster associated with the search could be, you know, sometimes people work with inexperienced volunteers, but they feel so lucky to have someone working on their search for free that they let that person take the ball and run with it. And they could end up identifying the wrong individual and even insisting to the family themselves, no, I know that you're the right person to the extent that they permanently alienate the adoptee from the family. That can happen, it does happen. And, and so that creates a roller coaster where someone feels very helpful or if someone does what they can and then realizes they're really not qualified, they just kind of disappear on them and then they feel hopeless and helpless. So sometimes the adoptee has gone through a roller coaster searching the DNA route before they come to me and others, like many, you know, they'll take the test and they'll, I don't know what people expect, but they think, wow, if I take a DNA test, I'm going to be able to find them. And then they look at their results, their admixture chart and their DNA matches. And they see second and third cousins, some of whom have family trees linked to their names, some who don't. And they say, now what, what do I do? How do I, how do I make sense of this? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it is it is very emotionally charged because we always get up our get our hopes up that at last we're regardless of even whether or not relations are possible relationships are possible. It's like at last I'm finally going to never have to wonder again, which is liberating. And when that doesn't occur, you know, it's a it's a big letdown. Yeah, because as human beings adoptees or non-adoptees I don't think that we're particularly good at predicting how we're going to feel when things happen that's true that's true um I had a client who pursued me in earnest and wanted to know how soon I could do it and how long it would take and when I found their birth mom uh, which is who they were interested in searching for um they decided they didn't want contact they were too fearful he became emotionally paralyzed 
Uh, that's not everybody, but you know, sometimes people think they know what they want until it's no longer a dream and it becomes a reality. And then fear kicks in. You know, you're on this, the adrenaline of the search and the pursuit and, and you're going to find it and you're determined. And then when you have in front of you what you believed you wanted, sometimes you know, well, then, then that whole, what if she doesn't want to know me? What if she refuses contact with me? I would be crushed. So I'd rather not pursue this because I think it would kill me, you know, if, if she didn't want to know me. Yeah. Yeah. I can. Yeah. Um, I feel that. And tricky, eh? Tricky. And it is crushing for some. I mean, sometimes there are what's called late discovery adoptees, as you know, we call them LDAs. These are people who have found out after their parents pass, either through records in the family drawer or safe deposit box that they were adopted and were never told. And some of these folks had the inkling, you know, as teenagers and even asked the question and were told, no, no, no. And they go spiraling into therapy because you can't have an argument with a tombstone you can't understand why you were lied to and not trusted with your own truth. Um, and uh, it, it's a hard nut to swallow and, and very difficult to process. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, see, when people ask me about my birth mom, I say, well, yeah, I found out that she, I found out that she was, uh, she died and they go, and they go, so you didn't get any closure then? Um, and I said, well, I, I did, I, I did get closure. I, I, I did get closure and I did, I didn't get the result um, I was expecting. I didn't get the result that I was desiring of, you know, nobody would want to find that out, but I had that meltdown in the, the therapist chair restarted my um at the prospect of uh, another rejection from a birth mother uh and then i i i restarted the search and and i got the i got my adoption file i got my adoption file as part of that search and in that in in people have heard me talk about this but it, um in that in that file there was um, a a letter that made clear to me how much my birth mother loved me how the, the the teddy bear that i'd seen as some kind of crude consolation prize was a was a symbol of her love and that was my that was my closure because the 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 um the trauma had surfaced around the teddy bear and then the the resolution of the teddy bear being from her in the letter of about to the social worker about the teddy bear, that was closure. Now I could have never expected that. I, I, well, I, I think know. part of that has to do with, as you know, Simon being adopted. If you share that information in your youth, kids can be cruel. Your own mother didn't want you. You know, kids can use that information at age six, eight, 10, 15, 20, to, to hurt you with that, as if you had any control over it or as if it were even true. So when you learn, as you did, that she was your mother and that she did love you and she wanted to continue to be your mother and care for you and nurture you in the way that mommies nurture their new babies, 
must have been profoundly moving because of what we tend to believe by sheer virtue of the fact that we were given up. Yeah. And it makes you feel, you know, I am lovable. I am worthy. I didn't fall out of the sky. I am connected to the human condition through people, through this person. But the healing came from a letter, not from meeting her. And it wasn't right. a letter written to me. So I'm, 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 what, I'm, what I'm trying to say, I think, in a roundabout, waffly kind of a way, as sometimes do, is that, you know, like, it doesn't all hinge on a happy reunion. That's true. It doesn't all hinge on a happy reunion. And you don't know where it's going to go. And let, but you've got to take you've got to take the, the the next step as feels appropriate to you. You know, like if if you know as this client, you know, you'll think uh, your client. You talked about him being emotionally paralyzed by this this fear of fear. That wasn't that was you know I was the opposite of that. But we're all okay. We're all we're all grown ups. We're all in charge of our own search. We can we can stop the process. And, and and back out of it if if it gets too hot and we can all we can all go back to it you know once we're you know once once we're ready to to do that and there's there's no um yeah we're it's we true. are in control we weren't I, in control of being relinquished but we are in control now you can do what you want to do and i agree that closure and or healing does not necessarily come from reunion or um, meeting your birth parent or even if, I mean, some people have gone through the honeymoon period and have had a permanent falling out after that. Um, But I always encourage people to take pause after we've discovered the truth to just celebrate the end of a lifelong preoccupation of wonderment and to just breathe and let's hope for the best possible outcome um, when contact is made but whether or not relationships are possible discovering the truth of who you are in many ways is profoundly healing you you can't be loved out of your need to know is something I always say because I mean that's what's true for me and many of the people that I work with Um, it's just part of the human condition and uh, to know who we are and where we come from and who our people are Um, That said, there are people who don't really feel the need to search or feel that they would be um, betraying their adoptive parents to take up a search. And I find that this is way more so true among men who feel a tremendous sense of loyalty to their adoptive mother and won't even consider beginning a search um, until she's deceased. And that's oftentimes when they'll find their birth mom may be too, and that it's too late. Yeah. Well, I, I felt I felt I felt like that, um, and uh, when I was going through my my search, I, I didn't tell I didn't tell my mum. So, you uh, did I feel like I was betraying her? N- no. Did I want her to know that I was searching? No. The two things are completely completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, does but she feeling? Does she listen to the podcast and she's not going to find out that, but she knows that, <laughs> she know that I kept it secret. Did I keep it secret? Well, yeah, I guess, but you know, you don't, you don't have to tell. 
I, it was tricky for me actually because I was brought up very honest and open, and um, and and so it felt to to an extent. But did I feel like I was betraying when I did the search? No, but I wouldn't rub it. I wouldn't rub it in a, a face. And uh, you know, I was drawing. Uh, you know, I said earlier on that your 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 mum was quite uh, seemed quite enlightened for those days. You know, to to be okay with with that, she must have been. Um, uh, yeah, had her own sense of grounding. This is when I when I talk to adoptive parents. Um, the more aware, the more grounded parents are always the ones that say to me, actually, Simon, um, I, my relationship with my kids begins with me. It's it's about me overcoming my own trauma, my own demons. Uh, and I, if, if I become a better person, I become a better parent. And... And it's great to it's great to hear that from them. I, I had um, uh, an email this morning from uh, a, a middle school a middle schooler in New Mexico doing a project. She's um, uh, she's yeah about adoption, and um, and and she she said, well, you know, what do you think? You know, you're an, you're an expert. I said, well, I'm not an I'm not an expert. I, I, I'm not an expert. I said, I'm not a shrink. But I, um, I'm an expert from my own experience. If that's what's interesting, if 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 that qualified, but I also believe that I listen to the adoptive parents and you know how together they are. How she said, what changes would you, what changes would you uh, recommend? And I'd say, well, they 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 need to be a little bit clearer of their own trauma before they before they adopt. Them, themselves that's because if they're in a better place they're going to create a better uh, space for their for their kids growing up it any relationship starts with us and this whole thing about um you know trying trying to fix my kid well look in the mirror look in the mirror first right fix yourself and then you'll be in a better place to 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 um to to raise your kid you know uh, so anyway, one of the things about adoptees, that's just a truth. It's hard for us kind of being in the middle is we have the mother who gave birth to us and the mother who raised us. We have two mothers. And some people argue that mother means the person who gave birth to you only. And others will argue it's, you know, it's a relationship. It's the person who raised you. And it's both. And, you know, here I am pushing 60 years old and have a 24 year old your your search for my birth mother behind me and um a 10-year search for my natural father after that behind me i mean these these impossible searches in many ways became the school in which i was able to help others so i realize their purpose now you think the universe is punishing you that you can't find the answer you've been searching for when so many other people can and now i look back and i i see the reason if you you want to put it that way but um I think that I would have to agree with you that the better place the parent is in, the easier it is for them to really be there and understand what they need for their child and put their own emotions around that aside to the extent that they can close that hole in that child's heart that exists because of the not knowing, like missing the first 10 minutes of the movie of their lives. 
Yeah. And I think for us as adoptees, it, it's grace with our grace with our birth parents and, and grace with our adoptive parents, you know, like being um, they, they were always doing the best that they could. Do you know, like um, uh, people these days, it's trauma, it's trauma all the way, isn't it? Like the, uh, and we wouldn't be who we are without both sets of parents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't. And, and this, the, we're judging, uh, yeah, so in, in the adoption agencies, most adoption agencies are run by adoptive mums, you know, like from, from my experience. So mm. that they are, and they're running, they are, um, because, it, because, because it's become so shrinkified, there's so many, because the shrinks are the, are um, are the heroes in you know they're, they're the all-knowing sages in the adoption industry. I, I think the adoption industry has become obsessed with with trauma, and and I feel that a lot of adult adoptees are obsessed with trauma as well. And I think that we should be trauma informed and healing obsessed. I don't see a lot of people out there being healing obsessed. Everybody's because saying, they get addicted addicted to the peptides of depression and anxiety and fear and misery and people can get stuck um and that pain if they don't have their own information it's kind of like that pain at least it's theirs and they know it and they nurse it and they nurture it and they talk about it on social media i remember going into a facebook group for adoptees a couple of years ago when we were circulating a petition for uh, original birth certificates and someone threw me the administrator threw me out of the group and said you're trying to be a politician in our crying room and I took a look at the timeline and it was all people who were giving each other virtual hugs for all their unhappiness and yet no one wanted to do anything proactive it's like, well, if you took a DNA test, well, I don't have the money. Well, if you went on care.com and became a babysitter in two sessions, you could have them. Well, blah, 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 blah. There's always some reason to stay stuck in the pain because it's comfortable and it's familiar and you don't have to face the fears of what if I find what I'm looking for? Powerful, powerful. Um, I was thinking that, uh, the other reason for giving the the parents grace is because this trauma stuff that is commonplace these days, um, no, nobody knew about that in the sixties. I so they 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 could only do they they could only like I I I, I sometimes I hold up my uh, my mum's mum the the um, the the adoption education that my mum and dad were given it, it's it's a uh, it's an a4 piece of paper folded in half right it's an a4 piece of paper folded in half it's approximately 700 words 700 words that was the adoption education that they were given wow so like so this is 1967 i'm talking about right so like can we not give? Can we give them some grace because they they didn't have they they didn't have all the all the all the 
books. They didn't have the, the the knowledge wasn't there for them to be. That's true. Tra- trained in, you know. And, there was no expectation when then you know back then it was believed that this infant is a blank slate with no ancestry, no birth parents. And whether or not you tell them they were adopted, which in the 60s, it was suggested by family psychologists that you do that um, uh, through various stories and whatnot, that so the child could understand that um, uh, that one day that child would grow up and want to search for their roots. And some parents feel, uh, some adoptive parents feel offended by that when other family members, extended family members learn of your search. If you share it with them, a lot of them will shame you as I talk about in my book, the shamers, you know, why do you want to find that? Not even them, that, why do you want to find that? Weren't your parents good to you? Didn't you have this and that? Weren't you loved? Uh, Didn't you have privilege or this or that and that's what i mean by you no one can love you out of your need to know and some people allow others to shame them out of their need to know i have people who contact me um who say you know hi i'm adopted i did a dna test i need your help um but i just want the medical information and i say you don't have to do that with me i get it i'm an adoptee because what we used to do is tell the shamers, oh, well, I'm interested in the medical information. Oh, oh, okay. You know, now you're okay and you're not the ungrateful adoptee. Um, so you're somehow more acceptable in the eyes of others or people who know your parents or members of your family if you hide what I call, quote unquote, hiding behind the medical. Of course, especially in this day and age, that's very important. Um, especially since they're curing terminal illnesses with stem cell transplants, et cetera. Um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. So um, have, uh, it's been, it's been, I've, I've loved the, I've loved the conversation and I love what you, you've said it twice now, but you just said it again. No one can love you out of the need to know. I love, I love that. Um Thank so you. I would encourage you listeners, if you're interested in this, check out the, the check out the show notes, check out uh, Jerry's um, um, book and let's get ourselves better ed- educated about this stuff. And, you know, the, that, that little throwaway line about the um, uh, what you said about people, look, you know, hiding behind the medical. And this, uh, Jerry's most got- people want the hug. They want the reunion. They want to see who they look like. They want to, human beings have a need to feel that they belong. Not that they don't feel they belong in their adoptive family, but it is a basic human need to know who you are and where you come from, I think. Is there anything that you'd like to share that I've not um, asked you a question about? I loved what you said about healing and I love the name of your business, Thriving Adoptees. And when I think of that, I think of, you know, for me, it's, you know, in many ways, people who have um, processed and reconciled their adoption experience, search and reunion, whatever it means for them, that they're in a place where 
they're in a good place. They, they love where they are in their lives. They've accomplished what it is they want to accomplish or know what it is they've always wanted to know and they're at peace. They, however it is, whether they search or not or are reunited or not, that they're in a good place. And I really think that the service that you provide to really the global adoption community uh, with your podcast um, is extremely valuable because healing means so many things to, to different people. Thank you. Yeah. And I think we should be healing obsessed, right? I think that's what we should be looking for. I like for. that. I, um, I, I, I have a, a little grumble. I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times on podcasts, but I'm going to have, I, I haven't shared it with you, but there's, I, I read the, there's the, you heard of this guy, Bruce Perry, the trauma, is tra, a trauma guru. He's a guy called, he's an American guy called Bruce Perry. And he's written a book with um, with, with Oprah, and it, it, it's it, it's basically just a long advert for him, and it's got a very simple message, which is you know it's um, you, you, it's not your fault, you know it's what happened to you. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just what happened to you. So it's not adoption solely about adoption, but yeah. Um, but he keeps on saying trauma, 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 trauma. But the brain is neuro, you know, but we've got neuroplastic brains. And then right, so there's, reason, <laughs> there's, there's reason to be hope. And then we he, can form new connections. Oh, yes. But then he goes back into the, you know, trauma, 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 trauma. And, um, and, and then he comes back and says, yes, but we have neuroplasticity. And I'm just thinking, well, how, mate? You know, like, what do you do? Like, it, you've written this book. You've got Oprah on board. You've been working with Oprah, you know. But where, where are we? How are we going to be healed? Don't just, don't just dangle a, a little carrot called hope. Tell me what it. Tell me what it's about. Tell me what healing is about. Tell, explain to me. You know, have you heard this thing that there's no actual scientific proof that the primal wound exists? Have you heard that? There's no scientific proof that the, the primal wound exists. Well, they'll say there's no scientific proof that a man was curing brain cancer with peptide pills, uh, Dr. Stan Brzezinski, and the courts wanted to, uh, uh, you know, he, he was brought in front of a grand jury like eight times and his patients whose lives he saved 20 years later are marching on the courthouse and yet people will stand there and say, unless there was a clinical trial, there's no proof. And people are standing up, there's proof, there's proof, there's me, I'm 25, I was four years old when I had an inoperable brain tumor the size of a golf ball in the middle of my head. Well, there's no proof. Of course there's proof. World. It's a weird world, it's a weird world. But uh, you know, on the other hand, I remember reading Nancy Verrier's Primal Wound uh, in the 80s, and I could, see uh, more so the trauma of a birth parent who's conscious and 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. And of course I have no recollection of being in the womb and I was fortunate, I was held and loved and uh, treated like a, a natural child of her parents. And so I really couldn't relate. But as I got older and I embarked on my search, I. I saw more truth of what was in that and how it had 
um, impacted me, my psyche, my life, my sense of self. Um, and in many ways, search and reunion is what healed me because, you know, we live here, Simon, in a system. I was in a, a New York adoptee. Uh, and until January of 2020, years after I found my birth mom, um, I finally got a copy of my original birth record, which had the same alias on it as my adoption papers. But at least, just like every other American citizen, I was finally allowed to have it. I wasn't discriminated against by a, a second-class citizen by sheer virtue of the fact that my parents weren't married at the time I was born, that I wasn't born within the construct of marriage. And so, but going back to the trauma and primal wound, um, I think that there are some people who really take that overboard and, you know, write and post poems on social media about how they remember being born and they felt their mother's trauma. And it's like, you're an infant. You don't, none of us have access to pre-verbal memory. This is nonsense. And then in other ways, you yourself, the more evolved you are and the more familiar you are with the issues can see the truth in what's being put forth and how it shaped who you became. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I took, I took the primal wound to heart. I thought this explains everything. Um, and then I realized that maybe I was wrong and I'm not going to try and answer, uh, I'm not going to try and sum up why I think I, uh, why I think I was wrong. Uh, because it's a big, it's a big question. And if well, it's a journey and a, and a book that every adoptee should definitely read to see, you know, it's like anything else, eat the meat and spit out the bones, see what see what resonates with you and, and hold that, you know. Mm, okay. Um, so if you're going to read it, uh, listeners, if you haven't read it already, then yeah, maybe see if it fit, fits for you and read it. But um i and then once you've read it um then watch the video that's going to be in the links and um, so the video i did a, a webinar uh, a month or so ago um, and it's called whole healing my primal wound and i go in depth on this for like an hour and a, uh, an hour and a quarter on what what the primal wound is and um what i believe uh, and and I don't have the uh, I don't have the audience or the credibility of Nancy Vera. This is just my my personal experience on my view on the primal wound and what I believe is a more accurate metaphor to uh, to to differentiate trauma from who we are. And you also you know harking back to the scientific proof. I mean, certainly there's scientific proof that emotions and chemical changes in the body through cortisol, fear, stress, all of those things are transferred to the child uh, while, the, while the child is in utero. So I think that there is uh, some scientific aspects of that. Uh, yeah, I think- That there are. The, the stuff that I saw um, was a guy, uh, was actually, uh, is there scientific proof of the primal wound rather than is the scientific proof that the birth the the, the the what's going on for the mother is transferred to the to, to the to the child i think the two slightly oh okay different, different gotcha. things yeah yeah um yeah i, I there was a, there was a guy from 
well, not too far away from you, up in uh, New England, uh, Harvard, uh, ha Harvard medical professor or children children's pediatrics guy. I can't remember the, the chap's name, but he he was the one that said there's no, no scientific proof, and it it does it it does kind of. Linking to what you what you said about um, clinical trials and, and and what what constitutes scientific proof because it's it's a complicated thing that I and everyone's know. got an opinion and it's and a degree from an Ivy League school doesn't necessarily make the opinion correct for everyone. It doesn't. It doesn't. And when I think about doctors. Um, I often think about what doctors were doing in the 60s when we were born. They were promoting smoking. They were paid. They were paid by the tobacco companies to, 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 to promote smoking. So, you know, science moves on and, uh, and um, opinions, uh, opinions and evidence change would become, I think we'd be, we've become fixated with science and, and well it's like uh, they say the earth the earth was flat until it was round indeed. and how many people lost their head for suggesting it was round before it was generally accepted because there was a time when if you conflicted with the king you know or what yeah, have yeah. you apparently it took two they reckoned it took two i think they reckon it took two thousand years for that was it two no 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 two hundred years it, it from two hundred years for the for the general consensus to change about flat earth yeah that's interesting yeah 200 so, and there's still yeah. flat earthers out there right oh yeah there yeah. are yeah fascinating jerry fascinating um thank you listeners uh check out what jerry's doing the great book um and she knows as you uh, as you know now because you've been listening for an hour and so she knows her onions so um uh, reach out to her thanks a lot listeners thank you jerry thank you simon